Um, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. Paul seems to really like lists, and there are quite a few in this chapter. There were a lot of words swirling around in my head, so I typed out a handout um, with those lists separated out. I put them on your tables just in case they might help you as well. Um, so we've reached the end of the first letter to Timothy. And this letter has been about Paul passing on wisdom to Timothy, things that were so important for Timothy to know. The world bombards us with things that the world thinks we need to know every day, like stock market fluctuations and wild weather and tax increases and politics, etc. But uh, we need to focus on what God thinks is important for us to know, and that would be what we have read in this letter to Timothy. We need to keep our focus on eternal life that Paul has told us to lay hold of, not this temporal life. This is what we really need to get through each day. This letter was also about stirring up Paul's courage. I mean, Paul stirring up Timothy's courage. Paul trusted Timothy, but he knew that Timothy needed this special encouragement. Timothy was not a weakling, but this job was just so big. So remember that Timothy was overseeing a whole region of churches where false teachers and false teachings had crept in and needed to be removed, and, and Nero was burning Christians alive, and it wouldn't be too long before Jerusalem would be destroyed. So let's get into Paul's final words, starting in verse 11. He says, but you, which means Paul's going to connect the previous verses that Abby taught on the last time we were together, and he's going to make a contrast between those and what he's going to talk about tonight. Remember in verses 3 to 5, which is that first list on your handout there, Paul talked about those who teach another doctrine, whom he describes as proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, full of envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions, having corrupt minds and destitute of truth, using godliness as a means of gain. And remember in verses 6 through 10, which is that second list on the handout, Paul talked about those who desire to be rich and have a sinful love of money, whom he describes as falling into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmless lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, straying from the faith and piercing themselves through with many sorrows. Paul had seen men in the ministry fall into these traps, and he didn't want that to happen to Timothy. At this point in their relationship as a mentor and a mentee, Paul chooses to call Timothy, O oh, man of God. Paul had called Timothy his beloved son, his faithful son, a brother, a servant, a fellow laborer, and a true son. But here he calls him a man of God. And this title was mostly used in the Old Testament for the prophets. And Moses was the first one to be called a man of God. It held weight. A man of God is one who is walking with God, and therefore, God can speak to him and through him to others. And this is where Paul thought Timothy was at this point. Timothy is the only one called a man of God in the New Testament. You can almost hear the passion in Paul's voice, oh, man of God. You can hear the love he has for his son in the faith. He does not want Timothy to shipwreck his faith. After being called a man of God, Timothy might have been surprised to hear the next word, flee. We might think that almost sounds cowardly. A man of God or a woman of God wouldn't flee or run away, right? But we are to run like we're running from an enemy, like we're running for our lives, because we are. 
To not flee all those things talked about in verses 3 to 10 is to be sucked down to destruction. It may not happen quickly, but giving into compromise little by little will bring us down eventually. To have a love of money and success will cause a Christian to compromise little by little. This isn't to say that we shouldn't be hard workers and appreciative of the compensation that we receive, and it isn't to say that we shouldn't want to be successful. But if loving it causes us to compromise our faith in any way, we are in danger. It's easy for a non-believer to blur the lines and compromise for gain, but believers should have a hard, hard time doing that because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We need to not be seduced by money and success. We think maybe it can't happen to us, but little compromises over time will lead us away from faith. Demas, who was one of Paul's fellow workers in the ministry, abandoned the ministry and left town. Paul wrote about this sad situation in 2 Timothy 4.10. He said, Demas, because he loved this world, deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. The Greek tense of the word flee indicates that we are to keep on continuously fleeing from the things in verses 3 to 10, because these things will always be a temptation to us. We all have things that we need to flee from. They will be different for each one of us. It could be the love of money, but it could be wasting time. It could be anything that's an idol of our heart. We need to identify these things, asking God to show us anything that we're not seeing in ourselves that we should be fleeing from, and we need to flee from it. Just as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife and her sexual advances in Genesis 39. We don't want to be like David, who did not flee when he saw Bathsheba, which led to David being responsible for Bathsheba's husband's death and the death of his own child. So we do not only flee from the things listed in verses 3 to 10, but we are actually to turn and pursue these characteristics, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Rather than pursuing money, we have been called to be different. We live for another kingdom. We don't live for the material wealth and riches of this world. And Paul's encouraging Timothy to set his vision on a higher level. He has greater things to live for than earthly riches and success. Timothy is to live for true riches. True riches is to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19 tells us. And just as we are to keep on fleeing the things of verses 3 to 10 and to keep on pursuing, we are running after these characteristics. We don't ever want to think, oh, I'm doing great in that area and slack off pursuing these characteristics because that's just the time will fall. We were sanctified and made righteous when we were saved by the blood of Jesus. We were at that moment set apart and made holy unto the Lord, but it's a progress and a process of our Christian walk. It's a lifestyle committed to living for the glory of God. And so we pursue righteousness. This is doing what's right, possessing integrity, living it out. We should always be thinking, what would Jesus do? What does God say about this in his word? And then do it. In Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist asks, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And the answer is, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We're to pursue godliness. This word means holiness, set apart for God. It means God-likeness. This would include being in agreement with God, 
not wanting to sin, but to keep God's commandments, desiring to be conformed to the image of Jesus, displaying the fruits of the Spirit, dying to self, seeking to have a purity of heart, having a reverence towards God, being humble, and holding onto the things of earth loosely because our affections are set on heaven. We're to pursue faith. This means being faithful or dependable to the Lord first, to our families, and to our ministries. We're to pursue love. The Greek word for love here is agape, and this would be to meet the needs of others before our own needs. We're to esteem others better than ourselves. We're to pursue patience. This means sticking with it, enduring, bearing up under pressure, even when things are tough and people are persecuting you. And we're to pursue gentleness. Gentleness is meekness, not weakness. It is strength under control. And then we're to fight the good fight of faith. I think sometimes we forget that the fight never ends. This life is a battleground. We have a ruthless enemy. To fight means to agonize. It applied to the athletes who were agonizing to win a gold medal and soldiers agonizing to win a battle. It requires discipline and work. It requires wrestling and praying. We will struggle with sin like we didn't before being saved when it didn't really bother us. And again, just as we are to keep on fleeing and to keep on pursuing, we are to keep on fighting. This is a very serious fight because we are fighting the world, we are fighting the flesh, and we are fighting our enemy, the devil. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Paul says, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul understood, especially after seeing some shipwreck their faith, how important it was to fight the good fight of faith. He didn't want Timothy to shipwreck his faith, and we don't want to shipwreck our faith. We need to encourage each other in the fight just as Paul was encouraging Timothy. Notice it's a good fight. We don't like fighting. We don't like confrontation, most of us women anyway. Sometimes it is tough, and we can feel like the psalmist who said, I would have lost heart unless I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, it says in Psalm 27, 13. Or we can agree with Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, John 6, 68. We don't want to lose this fight. In those days, boxing matches would be held where the gloves were equipped with bone and metal. If you lost that fight, you were destroyed physically. This is what Paul's thinking about when he wants us to fight the good fight of faith so we won't be destroyed spiritually. Tertullian, who was an ancient church father, said, you are about to enter a noble contest in which the living God acts the part of superintendent and the Holy Spirit is your trainer. A contest whose crown is eternity, whose prize is angelic nature, citizenship in heaven, and glory forever and ever. So we fight this good fight of faith for this reason, to lay hold on eternal life. To lay hold means to, to seize, to attain, to get a grip on. Paul says in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are to live in the light of eternity. So he's to fight 
the good fight of faith. He's to lay hold of eternal life to which you were called. This speaks of the sovereignty of God. We clearly have a part in that we are to lay hold of eternal life, but we also have been called to our salvation by God. Paul was called, Timothy was called, and we are called. We don't always understand this concept of sovereignty and election. But I like this quote by Charles Spurgeon who said, Some men hate the doctrine of divine sovereignty, but those who are called by grace love it. For they feel if it had not been for sovereignty, they never would have been saved. Was there anything good in us that moved the heart of God to save us? No. There was much in us that might have caused God to pass us by if he had looked to us. And yet here we are, praising his name. By God's call, we are his. So Timothy was to fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold of eternal life to which he was called, and had confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This probably refers to Timothy's baptism in front of many witnesses, and we do this today as well. It signifies that we are dead to our old life and alive to our new life in Christ. It's a good confession. It's a beautiful one and a precious one. Now, verses 13 to 15 are going to be Timothy's motivation and great encouragement to flee the things of verses 3 to 10 and to pursue the godly characteristics of 11 to 12. This motivation is all descriptions of God, the greatest motivation of all. A pastor's wife whose book I read um, used to prepare the study came up with an acrostic using the word motivation to help us remember these descriptions of God. The first one, beginning in uh, verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God would be the, the first O in motivation, omnipresent. Paul's urging Timothy in the presence of God. He is saying that God is everywhere and watching all of us. Psalm 139.7 says, where can I flee from your presence? We can't. This is a great motivation for living out our profession of faith. The second one, who gives life to all things? This would be the first I, the imparter of life. Paul says in his sermon on Marcel in Acts 17.24 that he, God, gives to all life, breath, and all things. God gives life. He maintains life. He restores life, and he raises the dead. It's God who's going to give us eternal life after we have fought the good fight. Next it says, And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep, which means guard or protect, this commandment, which is the word of God, without spot, blameless. That means unrebukable, unsullied, so that there's no blight on our character or on God's character. So that would be the M in maintain your witness. Just as Jesus, before Pilate, confessed that he was the Son of God in the face of suffering and death, Jesus sealed his fate when he told Pilate, I am the Son of God. Had he not done that, Pilate might have released him. But just as Timothy was to confess that Jesus was the Son of God, we must have a good confession also, not ashamed that we belong to him. And then next, until our Lord... Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. That would be the A, appearing of our Lord. This is a great motivation to keep the charge of fighting the good faith, a great motivation for holy living. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
Philippians 1.10 says that you may be sincere and without blame until the day of the Lord Jesus. Next would be he who is the blessed and only potentate. Potentate means the only happy sovereign ruler. So that would be the second O in motivation. He's the only potentate. If we're ever tempted to think we can rule our lives without him, we need to read Psalm 2. I won't read that, that whole psalm. You can read that at home. But it's a messianic psalm. And it talks about how the kings of the earth come against God and his anointed one, Jesus. And then later, um, after the battle of Armageddon in the future, the Lord will establish his rule and reign. Um, so we're to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling because the Lord will have his way. And then next is the king of kings. That would be the first T in motivation, the king of kings. This is certainly motivation when we think of all the kings that have come and gone. But our king is the one who will always be and to whom we will bow down when we have finished our race. The next T will be at the Lord of Lords. The emperor cult of that day would cry out, Caesar is Lord. But Timothy was to keep in the forefront of his life that Jesus alone was worthy of worship and complete devotion. One day, every knee will bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, it tells us in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Next, who alone has immortality. This is the second eye there, immortal. God will never die. He is not subject to death. The word actually means deathlessness. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it tells us in Revelation 1.8. One day we shall put on immortality, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Next, he is dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So that would be the end, no one can see him. No man has seen God at any time, says in John 1.18. Because he dwells in unapproachable, inaccessible light. Think on the enormity of God. There is none like him. If we can't gaze at the sun, which is but a small part of creation because of its exceeding heat and power, how much less can mortal man gaze at the inexpressible glory of God? That is, until we are admitted into his presence by him. Lastly, to whom be honor and everlasting power, amen. This would be the V. Veneration is to him alone. That's a word I don't use very often, but it means the highest degree of respect and reverence. Respect mingled with some degree of awe, a feeling or an a sentiment excited by the dignity and superiority of a person or by the sacredness of his character. God alone gets the glory. No flesh should glory in his presence, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.29. So as we think on God, he becomes our wonderful motivation to flee the things he wants us to flee and to pursue the things that he wants us to pursue. Paul has one more thing to say to those who are rich in verses 17 to 19. We might think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. But we need to remember that the poorest in this country are richer than around 70% of all people worldwide. So he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Money does not make you happy, in case you didn't know. Money may solve some problems, but bring other problems. 
there are numerous very sad stories of people who have won the lottery and literally ruined their lives. Google it. It's very interesting. They say money talks, and it does. It says, bye. Uh, Paul's going to give four commands to the rich, and we're going to use the acrostic R-I-C-H, rich. R stands for riches. The rich are not to trust in uncertain riches. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven, it says in Proverbs 23.5. And in Psalm 62.10, it says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. I stands for involvement. The rich are to be involved in good works. The rich are to do good things with their money. They should be known for being rich in good works, using their money to do a lot of good things, not living in pleasure and luxury while those uh, turning a, a blind eye to those less fortunate. They should be ready to give, not being stingy. They should be willing to share and do things with their money that have eternal value, like supporting missionaries or uh, paying for the training of a future pastor or helping widows, supporting orphans. Um, Acts 2, 44 through 45 says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold all their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Galatians 6, 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And Hebrews 13, 16 says, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. C stands for confidence. The rich must place their confidence in God alone. Money is uncertain, but God is living forever. Money can't buy you peace. Only God can give you peace. It is God who gives us all things to enjoy, and we can enjoy it when we know it's from him. Deuteronomy 8, 18 says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And then H stands for haughty. The rich are not to, be not to be haughty, which means high-minded. They're not to think that their riches are all that matters. They're not to think that their value comes from their money. They're not to be snobby. The rich are to fellowship with people from all walks of life. God gives us richly. He furnishes us abundantly. All things to enjoy, full enjoyment. It's God who gives us the ability to get wealth. He's the one who allows us to enjoy things like having money and the blessings it provides for us, like food, clothing, shelter, and the ability to bless those less fortunate. He wants us to enjoy creation and life as well. Matthew 7:11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Because we have a relationship with God, we can enjoy the blessings of life. Uh, and a lot of those don't even require money. We're like, we're so blessed to live here and be able to take a walk on the beach, and go out and look at the stars at night, right? Um, this is in contrast to so many ungodly rich men who haven't been able to enjoy the blessings that God has given them. For example, John Rockefeller said, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Vanderbilt said, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, who was the Jeff Bezos of his day, said, I am the most miserable man on earth. John Paul Getty said, what can I say? I only know that I am desolate. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanics job. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. They were miserable because they didn't acknowledge 
all they had was from God, and they didn't use all they had for God's glory. They were depressed and discouraged because they didn't see the big picture of eternity. We, the rich, are to follow these instructions from God in this life because it will keep our hearts free from materialism. We follow these instructions also because in doing so, we store up for ourselves a good foundation that is not set on the sinking sand of money, which comes and goes, but on the solid rock of Christ, which, who is our glory to come. We have Paul's final instruction in verses 20 and 21, and we'll list those instructions all out with, with, um, beginning with the letter G. The first one, guarding the truth. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard means to keep, just like you would keep something valuable in a safe place. Timothy's to keep Paul's instruction to him in a spiritual safe place, the deposit of his heart, as if God had made a deposit in Timothy's bank. And then Timothy has a responsibility to teach it to others so they in turn could pass it along. We don't need new theology. We need to protect the original. Our children and grandchildren will suffer if we don't guard the truth. The second one is getting away from error. We're to avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We guard the truth by keeping away from error. Profane means heathen, worldly, wicked. Idle babblings are fruitless discussions, utter emptiness, empty talk. Contradictions are oppositions. They argue against God's truth, like evolution, for example. We see a lot of that in the church today with people talking psychobabble or trying to merge new age, new age ideas with God's word. This should make us want to know the word of God all the more. And the, uh, number three, grievous result of those who don't guard the truth. By professing it, being false knowledge, some have strayed concerning the faith. Those that get caught up in vain conversations and idle babblings are in danger of straying from the faith. Getting caught up in a dangerous doctrine has eternal consequences. It could lead to eternal damnation. And then finally, he says, grace be with you. Amen. God's grace alone keeps us in the truth. Grace, which is God's divine influence on our heart and its reflection in our life, be with you. You is plural here. So Paul is talking to Timothy. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to the universal church, and he's talking to us. All these instructions are for us. We do our part by the grace of God, but all the while realizing that it's God who keeps us. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Amen. God is going to bring about all this in our life. God has given us many things to do, from fleeing false teachers and their teaching, to fleeing the love of money, to pursuing godly characteristics, to fighting the good fight of faith. Um, that can seem overwhelming. Uh, but we pray for us, uh, we pray to God to help us to stay committed to the good fight and to strengthen us in the battle. We put on the full armor of God that we may stand. May we take all that we have learned in First Timothy into our own hearts and lives. We don't need to be overwhelmed by all this because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can't do any of this in the power of self, only by the Holy Spirit. 
we can rest as we remember what Philippians 1, 6 tells us. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's be thankful for the tremendous riches that God has given us, most especially our salvation. I thought we could close by singing the song that Ryan's going to play for us that's based on Psalm 62, and together make it our prayer to God. It mentions many things that came up in our study, and then we'll go right into our table time. <laughs>